0: Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level. For the doctor is in.
1: Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master, gaining confidence, influence, and success. One of my early product experiences began with user observations. I spent a week with customers, observing them in their environment, learning what they needed to accomplish and the obstacles they encountered. By the end of the week, I was walking in their shoes. It was the start of what became a very successful product. The use of qualitative research, such as those user observations, is a powerful resource for product managers. And it was used successfully by Hyundai when they designed the second-generation Santa Fe, a crossover SUV. The person who was responsible for consumer insights and product strategy for the Santa Fe at the time was Heather Kluter. She is an innovator and decision engineer working with large companies to help them think bigger. And in our discussion, you'll learn the benefits of ethnographic research, those user observations, why very small market segments are useful, only 10 people for the Santa Fe research, and how to work through internal and external culture differences. You'll find the written summary of our discussion at com slash 164. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Heather, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast.
2: Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here, Chad.
1: So one of the places I teach is Boston University, and we have a class there on innovation strategy, AD741. And each year, we've been using a case study, which has to do with Hyundai's Santa Fe, their small SUV. And this is all about your work and the people that you worked with at the time. And ever since I came across this case study, I've been badly wanting to talk with you. And I'm delighted that we are doing it now and bringing this notion of market research and the ethnographic perspective of it to listeners. So I thought we'd start there kind of with the big picture What was the problem Hyundai was facing at the time that brought this about?
2: So, you know, the big problem was Hyundai had entered the U.S. market with horrible quality. And the only consumers who were buying the product were called captive resentful. So they were basically people who couldn't afford anything else, but they hated owning Hyundais. And so we knew the brand was at a point where it really needed to do something extreme to stay in this market or exit the market altogether. And at that time, the chairman had mandated that quality of the cars would increase to a very high level. And when something like that happens in a Korean company, it happens. So when the chairman says, do it, you're going to do it. So that was one thing that we had on our side. We felt confident that we were going to be producing a much more quality product. Mm -hmm. So then came you know, the question, well, will it be the right product for this market? Because even if it's a high- higher quality, in this case, SUV, if it's really designed in Korea for a Korean market, we knew that it wasn't going to um, provide what American consumers needed. We were working hard to try to help Korea understand that we needed to take the reins on product development. And at the time, you know, the company in the U.S., and Korea, they were pretty traditional in the sense, you know, there was a marketing group, there's a product team service, and then there was research. And the research being done was very, very standard. You know, lots of purchase of syndicated stuff, all the, all the JD power and everything else that the industry still uses and does need. Um, but the primary research we were doing was, again, very standard. Lots mm. of quantitative, Trying to really just track the big guys. What's Honda doing? What's Toyota doing? How do right. we do that? And we knew that that was not a winning strategy. So we said we need to do something extreme, um, and that's why we started thinking about touch the market.
1: I'm sure there were some cultural issues going on there, right? So the so like the, the the fundamentals of the problem here was we needed a step up quality to make to decide if we're going to stay in this market and stay competitive or not. And make a product, in the case of the Santa Fe, the small SUV, appeal to American consumers as opposed to Korean consumers. And I would think that there were cultural issues just going on inside, not the multinational cultural issues, but just the culture of the company was a factor in this too.
2: Right. And the culture of the company, aside from, as you mentioned, just the multicultural issues, Just within the U.S., things were very siloed and a process like touch the market does not work when you don't have groups that interact at various processes. You know, it was a very linear way of handing the car off from one stage to another. And then one group saying, we're done. Here it is. You do this part now. Mm -hmm. You know, product is done. Marketing, you go ahead now and take over. So this process does not function that way. So that was a big thing that we had to do was break down the silos within just the US, let alone trying to get Korea on board.
1: Yeah, a whole nother dimension there. And a lot of organizations have this problem, right? They're, They're very siloed, and we don't have strong cross functional product teams, and work gets handed off from one to the other. And this work needed to start with a clear understanding of the customer, because if you wanted to make a more appealing product, that means redesigning aspects of the the product. What was your role in all of this?
2: Initially, my role, because I really did represent the customer, you know, the, the research role, even though at that time, it was pretty traditional, it was all about trying to tell everybody what do customers and primarily prospects, because we needed a lot of new customers. So what do the prospects look like? And how do we appeal to them so the first thing we did was after we conducted a segmentation study we identified a particular person a target we called her glamour mom and she was going to be our design target for santa fe and she was a very specific person a very narrow target nothing that you could ever you know not enough that you could sell to those those women and make an entire you know model line Volume uh, forecast off, but someone that was very specific that designers and engineers and product developers could think about on a daily basis Mm -hmm. and design for her. So we had to find her, you know, and when you do a segmentation study, you end up with an algorithm that tries to help you find people in the segment so you can do further research. And that's great, but you know, it it still took us well over a hundred interviews to find 10 Glamour Moms that were really right. So we had identified them using the algorithm, but then we brought them in for a a 30 to 45-minute discussion to really understand, okay, you answered these questions in the algorithm, but let's dig deeper. Are you really the true Glamour Mom? And we finally found our 10.
1: So you had a target segment here of what you called Glamour Moms. Can you give us a a characteristic, Mm -hmm. a profile of what that Glamour Mom was like?
2: Sure. So she... You know, needed the space and functionality that an SUV provided, but at the time, most of the market was pretty boxy, um, you know, or more athletic and outdoorsy looking. So she really was looking for style in addition to the functionality. She definitely did not want to move over to the minivan, mm-hmm. so she was not going there. So she needed an option that was tailored to those needs. Um, and and not only style from a, a look standpoint, but from a driving feel. You know, something that didn't feel so truck based. We were moving into the unibody style of SUVs, so something that felt easier and smoother and more fun for her to drive.
1: One of the things I often run into into was people when we talk about segmentation is, well, you define this really small target market, right? And like you said, you had trouble identifying the 10 Glamour Moms really do follow-up research with, which we'll talk about in a moment. And sometimes people say, well, what good is that? Because you're focusing on such a small niche, and we need to sell you know tens of, tens of thousands of these, not just ones or twos. Why that focus, and how did, how did you think that was going to help you relate to a larger market?
2: In truth, we, we already had the larger market defined before going in and we refined it a little along mm-hmm. the way because it's a four year process to, do, to develop a car from, you know, blank piece of paper to something driving on the road. But we knew that we would move from design target, which is very narrow, to, um, media target and consumption target. So the media target would be obviously much broader and who we would market to. And then consumption would be even broader than that. People, mm-hmm outside that media would still purchase. So we, we kind of already had those three loosely defined and we felt confident that once we got to the consumption target, we would hit the volume that we needed to hit. But we felt that if we started there, there's not a clear enough picture of who that person is. And when designers and engineers, especially, and the product developers are trying to make a product and think about such a wide group of people, we just felt you'd end up with this... Something that was either very vanilla or something that looked or and felt kind of crazy because it was trying to put all things in that were, you know, the most important things Uh to everyone. So we just felt that moving to using starting with sorry, starting with a very narrowly defined design target would help our designers and engineers produce something that was just going to be much more special.
1: And to me, the point here, when it comes to this kind of customer research, where we're—and you'll describe this, this more about what actually happened with this uh, touch the market program for this Santa Fe—we don't need big numbers, though, of, of people to get insights from, right? When we're, when we're doing these kind of user observations or ethnographic research, it's actually really small numbers that give us really good insights, and—and and those are usually generalizable to, like you said, the you know the, the larger markets or the media target and the consumption target. I recently came across the story of Gatorade, and they were not doing well a few years ago. And they turned around the Gatorade business by adding on products that made sense for these rising athletes, besides just having the the Mm -hmm. drink product, right? And that whole effort was based on interviews with 12 high school students who were high school athletes. (laughs) Right. Um, so love that. Yeah. So, you know, we don't need big numbers when it comes to using these qualitative kind of research tools. Tell us what happened then with those 10 glamor moms that you focused on.
2: You bring up a good point too, because you asked me what challenges we were trying to overcome. And I had mentioned the silos, but yeah. probably our, our second biggest challenge was asking Korea to trust in qualitative research mm. because they were, They just thought numbers were it. They wanted everything. They wanted quantitatively to know how many millimeters of headroom does a customer want, which, you know, certainly we don't want to know that at the beginning of a design stage. And even at the end, they can't answer that question, but we find different ways to measure it. So we had to prove out exactly what you're saying, that there's a great deal of value in talking with a very few people um, and really understanding them. And so that's what we did with Glamour Mom. She was with us. Those 10 women were with us the entire four years. And we started out by getting to know her lifestyle. And that meant we had, again, this cross-functional team of people from the U.S. and from Korea in product marketing, um, engineering design, who came on lots of different excursions with Glamour Moms. We went shopping with her. We Showed up at her home in the morning to see what her morning routine was like. We came with her on the weekends to go to soccer games and do other family activities. We spent a lot of time just understanding her um, lifestyle, her design sense, when she shopped, what did she look at, what kind of colors appealed to her and why, what textures, what things did she look for. So we spent a lot of time just doing that. And then throughout the four years, Glamour Mom slowly became exposed to the concept. And so originally it was just discussion. Then we ultimately had clay models and full size models and then drivable models. And so those ten women were there with us the entire time. They were excited. They got to come into the design studio, which is something pretty special that most people don't get to do. So I think that it was a, it was a very unique relationship we created with them and mm-hmm. one that was really powerful.
1: I want to dive into that a little bit more. So um, as you said, it takes four years to get a a car from paper to out out to the market. And this was a a remake of the Santa Fe, right? So it was an upgrade to the existing Santa Fe car. Okay. I would think this was pretty heavily front loaded in terms of research to really understand what those glamour moms wanted. And as you said, you were shopping with them. What, What was this research team like? So if there were 10 moms, you know, 10 families, did you have a one or two researchers follow them around? Did you have people living in their homes for a while? I'm I'm curious the the extent of this research.
2: We usually split up. up. So we we weren't usually traveling in a pack with all 10 Glamour Moms. So Mm -hmm. our teams would split up and, okay, you're going to go with Susan, you're going with Diane, that sort of thing, so that it was more manageable. And then we'd all come back and talk about how they shopped or how their family interacted, whatever the event was and compare notes and watch videos and then synthesize some of our learnings. So we did it that way. I would love if I would go back and do it again, I would love to plant, ourselves in their homes for 24 or 48 hours for a weekend mm-hmm. and um, see what more we could have learned. We didn't We didn't get that far, but that certainly is happening now uh, in, other, in other worlds, you know?
1: Okay. Yeah. To really gain some insights into what they care about and how they think about uh, their choices. So that's very interesting. Were there any factors, like any excursions you did that you found were particularly relevant, like a certain kind of shopping experience or, you know, something else you did together. I don't know if anything stands out that says, you know, we we really learned something new from that experience.
2: Well, I think, yeah, you know, we shopped for all kinds of things. So we shopped for clothing, we shopped for handbags and shoes, we shopped for home goods, we shopped for groceries, and different learnings came out of all those, you know, in different ways. Grocery shopping and Costco shopping was primarily more functional and how does she use the space in the car to organize her purchases once uh-huh. they're there and unload them from the car? Um, style-wise, we learned a lot from shopping with them for clothing and for home goods. We learned a lot about color, about identification. You know, one woman, she picked a particular red wallet and she wanted that primarily because it was bright. And when she dumped it into her very large purse, it was really easy for her to find. Um, But when we watched them shop for purses, there were other things that came about just in terms of how they organize small things and um you know how could we replicate that in a car making things easy to find you know not just dumping tons of things in a glove box or a center console compartment that's huge and deep and just a big mess how mm-hmm. can we help them organize and there's you know the inside of that could look very much like a purse with different ways to organize that so we we learned a lot in that sense and we learned a lot about how she cares about how things feel, you Mm -hmm. know, watching, just watching people approach clothing and the way that they feel at first and feel how the texture is. And there's ability to relate to that, to materials inside a car.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I would think that first experience, just grabbing the steering wheel is one of those significant feel aspects, right? What what does that just feel like? Mm -hmm. Does it feel comforting and solid and like I'm in control or not?
0: Mm Exactly.
1: Okay. So lots there.
0: We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of the Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators. Your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Your one place to become a product master. Theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now.
1: Just to go back to the Glamour Mom aspect, this as a target segment... I would imagine there were other target segments that you considered at one point that you probably said, okay, let's not do that one. Let's do this one. At the end of the day, I suspect many of them would have worked in terms of giving you clear insights into how the car could be modified to be more appealing to an American consumer. Because it's not just that certainly Glamour Moms buy this. It's even not just that women buy this vehicle. How did you end up with the Glamour Mom? Did did you look at other segments and, and decide to do this one?
2: We definitely did. Um, we really were basing it on unmet needs. We felt she had the most unmet needs mm. in this market in terms of what she needed in a f- vehicle that was suitable functionally for her family, but suitable style-wise for her. And... Um, Certainly in our consumption target, we overlapped and we felt that our consumption would overlap into other segments. Like you said, some that were a close Mm -hmm. second that also had a high number of unmet needs and we could have focused on them. And I think in the end, in terms of consumption, we did grab some of those people Mm -hmm. as owners. So what we had hoped would happen did happen, which was great. But we felt she in particular had the most unmet needs um, in the way the market was at the time.
1: Okay. Okay. And going back to a comment you said about Korea's trust in quantitative information and kind of distrust of qualitative research, what was this like in getting this actually done, right? Because I think it it might be easy to sit back and go, well, sure, you know, big, big company, they have lots of resources available. I can see someone taking this on as a pet project and just throwing lots of money at it and saying, you know, go do this research. Having read the case, I know that wasn't the case, but... How did this actually come about that you even got any of this off the ground given the, the distrust of qualitative research?
2: The good thing for us is we we had a well-respected U.S. champion who was able to convince Korean leadership at his level to even try it. So that was the first step. And I think really that was just based on his relationships and the amount of trust they had in him. Mm-hmm. So that was that was – how we got let's just say lucky there and then what I noticed seemed to be happening in Korea was you had a changing of the guards so there was really an older group of management who were very traditional Mm. um you know and very much wanting to adhere to some of those older ways of doing things and reliance on quantitative and then you had a younger group that were up and coming and they had been outside of Korea working and getting educated. So they had extensive experience with things outside of Korea and they were more open to it. So though they didn't have a lot of power at the time, I think they, they had enough to say to some of those older leaders, we should give this a try. So those were our champions sort of in the lower levels, just just trying to give a little nudge and say, let's give it a try. And then you know, then it became really just the proof in the sales once we got the Santa Fe out the door. But you know, in the beginning, we'd have Koreans come to the events, and they were so excited when they got there and participating. Sometimes these events would end up being a whole week long, but by the last day or the second to last day, you could just visibly see a change in them. They were yeah. nervous to go home. And they were nervous to start collecting numbers like, hey, how can you give me some numbers, some data that I can go home with? Because I've got a bunch of insights, but I don't have percentages behind them to try to convince people that this is what we should do. So, you know, we still tried to rely on secondary information that we felt could back up and give them a little sense of ease while we tried to say we're going to really rely on a lot of this qualitative stuff. So it was a mixture of all that. And then finally with one success under our belt, which was Santa Fe, that really opened the doors.
1: Okay. So there was some change in the culture of the organization to do more of this.
2: Definitely. You know, and we didn't have four years to wait. I mean, we were obviously developing other product at the time. So we still had to try to keep this ball rolling with other products. Um, but like I said, the true success came after we had Santa Fe's success and then we started having other products who had, which had gone through the process. And ultimately, this is not in the case study. We were successful enough that we convinced management we should have a separate innovation office and we created a whole new hmm. office space in Newport Beach that was meant to be sort of, um, you know, a non-corporate place where design, engineering, planning, marketing, everybody could come together because a lot of those groups roll up into different management in the U S and in Korea. So it was just kind of a neutral zone. You could call it a DMZ if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. But, um, and so that's where our success ultimately went.
1: And I know there were some cultural issues or organizational structure issues that, and this is not uncommon that an organization will for whatever set of reasons create an innovation space or an incubator or a lab and then over time unwind that what was the fate of that innovation space in Newport Beach
2: yeah the the fate was definitely an unwinding i don't i think it was earlier than expected i mean I, I, there wasn't a plan there wasn't a plan for let's do this for 3 years and then we'll you know fold everything back in I think we, we hadn't gotten there yet. It was too young, but the few of us that had really started it left the company for various reasons, and it just hadn't gotten strong enough within the organization yet. Mm-hmm. It was still too people dependent, so it didn't survive.
1: Yeah, and that's a lot of the cultural issues, and I don't have any deep insights in the company, right, just a few things I see in the press. It, it strikes me that it's still a pretty siloed organization, And there was this moment in time of great hope of having more cross-functional activities. And in general, it seems like the products that do the best in the marketplace, and frankly, are probably the most fun to be a part of, are the ones that are cross-functionally driven. Thoughts on that?
2: That's true. I mean, after talking with a number of people since I left and since that, um, you know, the innovation office came, went away. Uh, they definitely did revert to more traditional methods, not doing this kind of thing and not having champions internally to drive it and continue mm-hmm. to drive it. So that's unfortunate. And I know it I know it has an effect on morale of people who are working in, you know, trying to work to create successful, exciting products because they're not able to do some of the things that <clears throat> they used to do or that they heard had been done in the past.
1: Yeah. And and your group doing this, you guys are scrappy, right? I mean, you, you had to just <laughs> make stuff happen at times, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I mean, we did we did a lot of it internally, you know, sometimes it was literally just field trips that we would do on an extended lunch break and, you know, Hey, let's go see the sunset design house today and kind of an underground word of who wants to come. And um you know, before we got official and started mm-hmm. creating teams and more structured events, but yeah, it was definitely unbudgeted, scrappy, type stuff. I did a ton of trend watching on my own and just tried to synthesize that for people and put that together and put that out into the organization. And it was well received, especially by groups that tend to do a little more of that, like marketing and PR and the agencies. Uh Um, Those sorts of groups were definitely excited to get that information and get those insights. So we just decided this had to happen and we were going to do it before we had budget. And before we really had approvals, we were just going to do what we could to try to get this started in the organization.
1: And and good for you. There there was some desire there and a need and everyday innovators listening. Sometimes this is what we have to do, right? We can't get support for a project, but we can start taking some action and and make things happen still and see what we can bring to the table. I appreciate you sharing that information. uh, this area of ethnographic research, it is by far my favorite uh, way to do customer research. And people who haven't had those experiences before, you just get such deeper insights than you possibly can otherwise. And you couple that with interviews, you can really uh, learn a lot about the needs, the problems that customers have and what they appreciate and how to provide value for them. So thanks for walking through some of that experience with us.
2: No, I, I'm so happy to, and I continue to do it to this day. In mm-hmm. fact, last week, I was on site with um, a well-known, I can't say, but a well-known retail brand that most listeners would know. They've got a relatively new CEO, and he participated. He. This is the third city. We're going on four, four cities, two full days of ethnographic work, and he's there, and he's sleeves rolled up and he's talking directly to these people and um, so that's exciting because that Mm -hmm. trickles down to his whole team that shows this is important and this is the kind of thing we are going to start doing they used to be more operational based and he said no we're not we're not going to base all our decisions on operations we're going to base it on our customers and the ones we want to also bring into the fold so I know you know that other people are excited by this and, and they're doing it and we're finding new ways too I mean Technology, I don't think, ever takes the place of being in front of someone live, but it's a way, especially if budget's an issue, that we can kind of combine some of the in-person mm-hmm. stuff that requires travel and et cetera with still getting the ethnographic insights. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of new possibilities that weren't around when I was doing the stuff for Hyundai that we're, we're incorporating now. So I, I think it's getting bigger and better.
1: Yeah, lots of good choices out there. And I know a couple of great researchers who... They find structured interviews by phone, uh, and they tend to do, do them in pairs to, uh, on the customer side, two customers at a time who don't know each other. They, they find they're, they're getting a, as good information as they typically do through ethnographic work and ways to find out what our customers need. So really important. Mm-hmm. As listeners know, I love a good innovation quote, and I ask that you bring one for us. Can you tell us what that is and why you chose it?
2: Sure. So I love a quote by Edith Witter, and she said, exploration is the engine that drives innovation. Innovation drives economic growth. So let's all go exploring. And that is what we started. As I mentioned, we just started exploring at Hyundai. We hadn't had no budget to do it, but we just started doing it. And I think when people get too afraid and want to put so much structure on finding out what they're consumers and their customers and their prospects want, and they start to forget the idea of we're going to just explore, um, that they lose something. And so I just love that idea that, that we're explorers.
1: Absolutely. I love that too. And uh, I've often shared that innovation is the the engine of economic growth. And I like that exploring aspect because that's what we're doing. We This is new. If it was new, it, we, we wouldn't be doing innovation. And Uh, exploring is a great way to frame that. Thanks for sharing that quote with us. You're
2: welcome. You're
1: you're certainly involved in helping companies do consumer research uh, of this vein and helping them get better positioning products and developing new products. If anyone wants to follow up with you, what's a a good way to do that?
2: Sure. So right now I'm working with a great company called Decision Analyst and everything's on my LinkedIn profile. So if they just search my name on LinkedIn, they should find me there, and they can connect with me, and we can talk.
1: And I will put the link in the show notes to make that easy for everyone to find your LinkedIn profile. Heather, I appreciate the information. Thanks for taking time to share some insights into ethnographic research with us.
2: Thank you so much, Chad. I appreciate that you're a champion for this and continuing to find new people to talk to and broadcast great information.
1: Thanks again for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with Heather and all the valuable resources at the Everydayinnovator.com slash one six four. Keep innovating.
0: Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at the com.